open up your books, you bad apples. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bad Apple Book Club podcast. This is Lucas Nord here. And I'm Coling. And before we got started, we just uh, had a little... We, we got some news in before... I mean, minutes before starting the recording session here. So I suppose... I will pass the baton over to you, Cole. Yeah, uh, we just got news of a member of the community of where Lucas and I live uh, past Jordan Auberg. And uh, yeah, I, I personally did not know him that well, but I did remember just through the little interactions I had with him, he was a uh, very kind dude one of the nicest dudes i've met and you know when you're in junior high or whatever it's very or like in sixth grade it's very intimidating for uh you to have a conversation with somebody who's like a senior whatever and like star of the basketball team whatever but um he was always very kind and i i just know um a lot of our listeners are hurting out there obviously um and if you guys are hurting, I'm I'm hurting too. So, yeah, like I, I just know that um, it's pretty hard for some of you guys out there, and I, I really don't know how to address these kind of kind of things, especially on a brand well, new podcast. You, but well, you know, we just wanted to throw a little something out there. I'll tell you one one thing I remember about that fella because I couldn't tell you the last time I saw him was that giant saxophone. <laughs> yeah. The, like, eight-foot-tall one. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Holy crap. Yep. Um, he did play the saxophone. I, I totally forgot about that. But uh, yeah. um, I think most people would I remember think... him from playing basketball. Uh, yes, very <laughs> tall. Yeah. Um, I tell you one thing, too, actually. Uh, that makes me think of if I could think back to band class in high school and remember all the instruments everyone played. I don't think I can, though. I know that you were a trumpet boy. Trumpet and trombone. You were a trombone boy. I did the the switch. Of course, a double threat. But yeah, yeah, like I I was saying, uh, we we really don't know how to address this, but I, I think it is appropriate to address it because... I know, um, sure. You know, it, it it affects a lot of people, and when I look back to my favorite like uh, comedians, like John Stewart and Conan, Conan O'Brien, during like tra- tragic events, like um, you know, it's just something you have to address, and you just keep on doing the show, really, because for some people it's a source of comfort, and. I hope that is something for everyone that listens is just, you know, maybe it's escape from reality. Maybe we can throw in a laugh or two for you. Um, or try. <laughs> yeah, well, we're really trying. Uh, comedy is really hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm breaking my back over <laughs> here. But yeah, uh, I just wanted to address that. But yeah, we'll, we'll still be doing the show. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So we are we are starting a new series today, a new 
multiple part series on a full book, not a short story, it's not a review episode, it is a book with pages in it. A big one. More than 40 of them. Yep. And not to say, I, I really, I like, uh, I think we did a great job on those Lovecraft episodes, you specifically with that monster of an outline for the man's life that we ran over in part one. Yeah. But, but for today we're going to be getting into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, is how I'm going to say it. I don't know how it's pronounced. K-E-S-E-Y. Kesey, maybe. Yeah. Either way, um, if I didn't know any better after, you know, having discussions with you on and off the podcast, I would think that Mr. Ken, Ken K., led a bit of an interesting life so why don't you take it away there cole yeah he he really did um and the the way we are gonna break down this is kind of weird but the way he structured the book was pretty weird so part one absolutely yeah part one takes up half of the book so uh, we're gonna do part one in two parts and i think we plan on doing two and three in one part and four in another but yeah that's that's how we're gonna structure these so far yeah i i remember finally getting to part two in the book like oh so this thing is separated into <laughs> this parts. this does have parts. like i forgot that i saw yeah i forgot that i saw part one 200 pages back or whatever yeah like right in the beginning of the book obviously i wonder what it is that makes some segment stories like this because I guess I can't particularly remember. Uh, of course, we'll talk about it too, but I guess I can't particularly remember what happens smack dab at the end of part one, but we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and some of you guys might be familiar with this title from the film. I can't remember what year it was made, but it, it stars Jack Nicholson. And that it does. But the book is actually really interesting in itself. So without further ado, um. I'll jump into this. So, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a criticism of many things that erupted in Cold War America, but it mainly serves as a criticism of mental health institutions at the time, because let's be honest, we kind of have a bad history with how we treat mental health in America and still do. And it, it promotes individuality. Like, it's just kind of this book that really pushes for hate to be explicit, but it's like, fuck the system, you know, and we'll get into it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But the way they portray it or he portrays it is very cool. I think. And it was written by a counterculture icon, Ken Kesey, uh, Casey, (laughs) Kesey. I don't know. Ken Kesey Keezy Keezy A. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> before we observe his life, uh, I think it's really important to address the elephant in the room that is the history of mental health in America. I thought you were going to say the elephant in the room that is Jack Nicholson's forehead <laughs> in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It is very um, in your face, isn't it? Yes. He's exuberant. Yeah, his uh, his character is as big as a tractor, you could say. 
uh, or his forehead. And I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I may say real quick, too, I hate to do research on the spot, but I did just look it up, and it looks to be pronounced Keezy. Okay, sweet. Okay. Cool. I'll, I'll carry on with that. So it's, it's set in stone now. Yeah. <laughs> There's no other. We're not going back. <laughs> nope. Throughout history, um, mental illness has been thought to be a form of demonic possession or just, you know, finger quote, personal problems that uh, would cause people to be outcasts. So there's always been this stigma um, where it's like, oh, the devil, the devil is at work here because this guy is a little bit off, but really he could be fine. But this mentality around mental health has created like many stigmas that still exist today. And these stigmas, they would lead to very harsh treatment of mentally ill people and would continue into the 18th century. And I mean, it's not like it stopped there. It, it still happens today. And people that were outcasts of society were placed in basements of like public buildings, jails, and even private homes to be forgotten about. So like mental illness is like, basically, if you had it, we're just going to box you away from society and just kind of forget about you. During the abolitionist and feminist movements of the 1800s, which was really interesting, they went hand in hand, uh, the whole like women's suffrage movement and uh, the freedom of slaves. Like these, these women and people of color were fighting for the same thing. And like, it, it was like a symbi symbiotic relationship. Is that, the, is that the word that you use where like both parties are equally sharing? I think so. Okay, I'm pretty sure. Because I'm going to base it off just the fact that I know that a parasite is when one, one of the two parties is gaining something. So symbiotic, I mean, it kind of sounds like parasite. So <laughs> we're, you know what? It's keezy. And symbiotic means both parties benefit. That's all there is to it. <laughs> uh, Love it or leave it. Yeah, and uh, if we're wrong, we'll edit it out, and you would never know. So, yeah. <laughs> but unless I keep mentioning symbiotic through the whole episode, <laughs> and people are going, "What? They didn't even mention anything about it in the beginning. What are they talking about?" <laughs> uh, it's just good fun. Yeah. Um. So, and I actually didn't know this until. In college, I had to write a paper on like a, like a feminist on the feminist movement and just do some more research into it. But yeah, like um, yeah, they're they're very close. The Seneca Falls Convention were very big, which if you guys don't know, that was one of the biggest uh, feminist movements to start in America. Started at this convention, and but they're also really involved with the abolitionist movement. But yeah, so during this time, there was a woman named, named Dorothy Dix uh, observed how bad treatment of the mentally ill had like really become in this country because we've just been throwing them into uh, basements and it, it, it was just disgusting how it, it was going down. And she went to Congress and she really pushed hard for the creation of mental asylums. So we, this is an idea that's like, oh, yeah, mental asylums. 
they're the abandoned buildings everywhere uh, where people used to be housed in. But that wasn't the case. She really had to push for a public building for the mentally ill to stay in. So her, her intentions were really good. And this event eventually did happen with the Kirkbride plan. Some of you back home might recognize this name because it is the name of the big abandoned mental asylum in Fergus Falls. And it goes by the Kirkbride Center or whatever. And it was a nationwide plan to construct semicircle buildings everywhere throughout the U.S. It, it just wasn't in the Midwest. It was everywhere. So mentally ill patients could get, quote, fresh air and sunlight so they could be cured. So, like, that's the kind of treatment that you could expect back then. It's just like, oh, just some sunlight will cure you and some fresh air. Pat on the back. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I'll admit it, like, sunlight and going outside does help. Oh. But, I mean, th- there's a lot more to it than just putting them in a semicircle building and uh, calling it a day. I actually wanted to mention earlier, getting a little off track here, that unfortunately it's starting to get cold, so I don't have every window in my house wide open to blow breeze through. So I'm not I'm not personally getting my prescribed dose of fresh air, but what can you do? <laughs> Could go to the Kirkbride building down the street. Uh yeah, I guess. <laughs> have you ever been inside that building? No, I've been by it a few times though, and I'll tell you. It is uh, ominous. It is. It is very ominous. Um, I remember they were doing tours there a few years ago. Yeah, I, I just about did one when I came back on leave, uh, but I believe they stopped doing tours. Hmm. But yeah, because so it's actually interesting that the one in Fergus Falls is still standing because almost all of them have been demolished because they're hard to maintain. They're just way too expensive to keep up. So, well, on top of all that stuff, too, they got to keep that one up to shoot low budget movies in. Like, uh, like my coworker worked on a movie there with Brad Dourif of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest fame. Wait, what? Plays Billy Bibbit in the movie. My coworker uh, was making a movie inside that building, uh, and Brad Dourif was there for at least a chunk of it. Oh my gosh. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, I believe the movie The movie is called The Test Group or something like that, I think. Okay. Yeah, Brad Dourif, filmed in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Well, have you seen it? Is it good? No, I have not seen it. But, you know, it might be. Okay. I'll have to check it out. The Control Group. The Control Group. That's what it's called. Oh, okay. Okay, very interesting. But yeah, um, and now they're just kind of like these uh, uh, haunted houses, you know, the yeah. during the Halloween time where it's just like, yeah, you, you can set up these terror houses where people chase you with chainsaws and stuff, which is, it's fun, I, but, it, you know. <laughs> it almost seems, it almost seems a little insensitive to chase someone through an old <laughs> mental asylum with a big knife. Like, oh, look, at I'm just like all the crazy people that used to be here. <laughs> look at me. I'm so crazy. Me, I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems a little insensitive now that I think yeah, about it. it is. 
It most definitely it <laughs> oh, is. Oh, it definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> look at me. I'm in this straitjacket. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look at me. This is how people are actually treated every day. <laughs> Man, that is good fun right there. <laughs> that is fun. Uh, so, yeah, like I was saying, um, although her intentions were good, in the, in the 19th century, these hospitals were no- notorious for harsh conditions, um, lack of funding, abuse, and overcrowding. And in the U.S., the population of these uh, mental asylums shot up by 927%. Out of the frying pan. Yes. So... Oh, man. The... You, I don't. I don't know the exact like. Oh, where one room you're only supposed to have two people. There was it's like eight or ten, but that number by itself is insane. And you can just kind of see like, yeah, if if something goes up by almost a thousand percent, there's going to be problems. And I would imagine the the treatment of the people there is only going to get worse. So views t- towards the asylums became more negative as community-oriented treatment became more popular, and psychiatric drugs were introduced in the mid-1950s. Community-oriented treatment. Does that mean, like, instead of putting them in the asylum, they just held on to their their family members and just personally took care of them? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so... <laughs> Now, I'm not an expert, but so more of the integration of society was happening where it's just like instead of, you know, sending your son who has problems to the insane asylum, you know, you just have them part of the family, like not that weird of a concept. Um, and, And you take them to like mental health experts or what have you, you know, it's more of like involved with the community. The federal government soon became involved, like to provide more funding for mental health research, which before this wasn't really a thing. Like there is still that stigma that haunted people. And the civil rights movements also inspired a push for better mental health just kind of like before where you had the abolitionist movements and the suffrage movements happening, you know, these civil rights movements don't stop. It's just like today where it's like, Oh yeah, the civil rights movement ended in the sixties and never came back. Uh, No, it's still going on. It's still very much an issue. When I think of the word suffrage, I just think of the term women's suffrage does suffrage literally mean to suffer? What is suffering? No, so suffrage is uh, gaining the right to vote. So when you hear oh, women's wonderful. when you hear uh, w- women's suffrage, it is uh, yeah their fight to vote, uh, which was a hard concept back in the day, I guess. Uh, unfortunately, but uh, good job, ladies. Either way, yeah, yeah, get out there and vote. Come November. Uh, rock and rock roll. and roll, baby. Um, oh my gosh, it is getting so close to election, but that's a whole another topic. Yeah, and another thing that led to more mental health like reform is President Kennedy wanted this as well because his sister Rosemary had a botched lobotomy that she never recovered from. 
just learned about this recently. I can imagine you did too yeah. within the last <laughs> couple of months, but that was a very interesting personal discovery to make. Yeah. That whole story is crazy. It is. It's really unfortunate too. And not to have fun with it, but I thought the idea of having a lobotomy was that it was pretty much botched because they just like botch your whole brain pretty much. Well, that's the thing. You it's know? just like How do you botch something. It's like uh, it's like botching burning a bag of garbage. Like the whole thing burnt up, but you burnt it up wrong. Yeah, it definitely botched that one. Yeah, very very uh, brutal technique and. Yeah, Lucas mentioned it earlier, but if you want to learn more about the history of it, the last podcast on the left did a pretty good uh, episode on it, so check that one out. It's a pretty crazy history. And for any unaware, the act of lobotomy is uh, they sold it as a surgery that didn't require any like tools other than the ice pick they put up, uh, <sighs> or is it? Next to the eyeball or up the nose, and then they just whacked away at the front part. I think it was your um, it's your eye frontal cortex. Yeah, what is it? It's, it's your frontal lobe. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, and then they just whacked away at that a few times, and then when you were done, you were rendered uh, pretty much nothing more than what walking people back ghost. then and probably would still refer to as a vegetable. Yeah, maybe. Not more lucid than a vegetable, but I think that certain cases of lobotomies, the people were actually able to still function. Like you were saying, walking ghosts, like still, you could tell them, walk over there and do this, but I don't think that they have much thoughts outside of that. Mm -mm. Once again, though, I'm not an expert in anything, and if I was an expert in anything, it certainly wouldn't be lobotomies. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Just want to throw it out there. <laughs> I don't want people. I know everyone comes to the podcast. They're thinking, I want to listen to the to this really smart guy and Cole, and I want to learn something. I want to be I want to be inspired. But if that's what you're coming to the podcast for, I'm sorry, but I don't know anything. Yeah, don't come here for medical advice. Uh, I appreciate you thinking that that's what this podcast is, even though it's very obviously a podcast about books. Yeah. <laughs> we, we offer multiple advice uh, lines on yeah, we do. whatever. But uh, so, yeah. Um, in 1963, John F. Kennedy, in response to like all this movement, the civil rights movements for better mental health treatment and his sister, he signed the community mental health act and this significantly reduced institutionalization which is exactly what that woman in the suffrage movement fought for uh just basically putting anybody with mental problems into institutions but this bill pretty much eliminated that pretty much not single-handedly destroyed uh, mental asylums, but it, it was the start of the end, basically. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was released in 1962, which the the book was. The, the mental institution that it was set in would have been a closed a year later. So just, just a year after this book was written, the type of institution it was like placed in, the setting was in, would be non-existent. 
And yeah, the movie came out in 1975, a clean 12 years past, you know, the closing of all this stuff, but they didn't need to set it in the current year. That really doesn't tell you much. But interestingly enough, while reading through the book and seeing the situations these people are put in, you could see it taking place in modern time because they're pretty much isolated from the outside world either which way, so... And see, there's another interesting thing that I wanted to throw in that I actually do know something about. Um, when they were closing down all the asylums for how horribly treated the patients were, that also led to many dangerously insane people being freed on the street with uh, probably not even a dollar in their pocket. Yeah, so that... The, Real double-edged sword. That's another damned thing. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, that's another thing is like... <sighs> It's hard to talk about because the issue of mental health is ever changing, right? And like a majority of homeless populations have some sort of, you know, mental illness. It's just one of those things where we're always going to have to be changing like legislation and whatnot because it is <laughs> our brains are always changing and there's just, you know, we, we, we're always going to have issues whether we like it or not. Um, who knows what these wacky brains are up to? Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Uh, maybe make a podcast. Maybe they'll make a podcast one day. Who knows? Who knows what they'll set out to? Yeah, do. that's kind of fun. So yeah, um, Ken Ken Kesey was familiar with these mental institutions because this is the author, and he worked at a VA hospital and dealt with mentally ill patients. So he he was born on. September 17th, 1935 in Colorado, and he was an avid wrestler and almost made it to the Olympics, but he suffered a oh. shoulder injury, but that's okay because he went to the University of Oregon to major in journalism and communication where he had a wrestling scholarship where he remains as one of the best wrestlers to this day at the University of Oregon. So, wow. Yeah, he was a hunk and he was a good writer. Um, yeah. Best of both worlds. Well, I mean, I don't know about the hunk part. I I haven't seen him. I mean, he wrestles good apparently. Yeah. Yeah, he is he he was a good wrestler. Good wrestler, boy. Yeah, and we're not talking that WWE stuff. No, we're talking <laughs> we're talking the the unitard cauliflower ear sport of wrestling. Ooh, a man's sport. Ugh. Yeah, I you know I always had a kind of had a gripe with wrestlers in high school. I was like, oh, they're a different breed. Which, uh, let's be honest, they kind of are. But it's because they are. Uh, it's just a whole nother sport that's uh, uh, pretty intense. Uh, and did we have a wrestling league in high school? Oh hell no, Lucas. We were very poor. I didn't think so. <laughs> I didn't think so. I, I always think back on that. Like, I'm thankful for my education. But at the same time, it's like, you know, a, a, a second language class would have been cool or, an, a, you know, some other. And now they got like these nice, like, 3D printers and stuff at their new school. And it's just like, man, where was this when I was in high school? I could have been like an electrical engineer, maybe. Uh -huh. <laughs> So he joined a creative writing program, and during this time, he also volunteered for a government program put on by the CIA by the name of Project MK Ultra. 
Whoa. <laughs> what would obviously what would obviously come to be known as uh, more than just a little government program put on by the CBI, uh, CBI CIA. <laughs> a little controversial, <laughs> you could say. Yes. Uh, just a little. But yeah, so if you guys don't know what this program was, it was very messed up. But at the end of the day, it was a program that tried to discover mind control by introducing hallucinogenic drugs like LSD to the, quote, volunteers. These people really didn't know what they were walking into. Most of them were just oblivious college students. And yeah, (laughs) and no one had ever taken LSD before this. So when they first got LSD, they had no idea what was going on. But Kesey would often go back to the hospital under the influence of these drugs. And he realized that the patients weren't actually that crazy or weird. And he didn't think they belonged in the hospital. So (laughs) he'd be on LSD. But, you know, he's tripping out of his mind. And then he's like, you know what? You're not that weird. He went to, okay, so apparently the MK Ultra appointment was at 8 in the morning and he had to be to work by 10. So he showed up and they gave him a little eyedropper of acid under the tongue and uh, pat on the back and sent him on his way, apparently. Then he's going to work. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. That sentence you just read? I did not expect to hear a sentence like that today. Yeah, for real. But here we are. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, and it's just like, I, I think like when he was under the influence, it was starting to wear off because obviously there's different experiments they did when he was introduced to the drug. I'm not sure what exactly, but uh, yeah, this kind of unintentionally formed the counterculture (laughs) movement and but this is also incredible because obviously we're gonna get into the book and we're gonna notice how much i mean every character in the book just has their own personality and they do all seem like real people you know well most yeah most of them seem like good real people compared to like we were talking about, like the stereotype of the crazy guy in the straight jacket, you know, running into the walls and stuff like that. But I mean, it's like they say, write what you know. Exactly. And this guy, this guy knew about LSD and mental institutions. Yeah. Yep. And he combined the two. Well, he didn't combine LSD in the story, but, uh, This experience of him at the hospital uh, inspired him to write the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, yeah, it makes you wonder if some of those characters were inspired by uh, real people, which I'm sure they would. Yeah. But like I was saying, the CIA would come to regret having Kesey in the program because he became known as a counterculture icon. Uh, yeah, dude. Whether whether or not you think that movement was just bullshit or like a summer of love, but um, he he had a huge part in making this movement, and he moved into a log house where we, he would have what he would call acid tests, and he would give guests this LSD laced Kool Aid, and he challenged them not to freak out. And these guests would never 
they obviously never had anything like this before. And it was just like, yeah, a challenge almost. Um, and, and here they enjoyed music put on by the Warlocks, who would later be known as, you want to take a guess, Lucas? The Warlocks? Yeah. Who were, okay, okay, I'm not looking at the outline. <laughs> uh, Goblin? Uh, it was uh, the band The Grateful Dead. They would become known Ooh. as The Grateful Dead. So wow. really, you, really should have stuck with Warlocks. <laughs> the Grateful Dead is just an awful name. Uh, but yeah, it's just crazy. He was right there in the scene. And he, he was so close with the lead singer, Jerry Garcia, to the point where Jerry Garcia let Keezy have a kid with his wife, Carolyn, who they called Whoa. Mountain Girl Adams. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, which just kind of this whole thing, like this sounds so much like Charles Manson and his cult, and Mountain Girl kind of sounds like Big Patty, um, one of the members of his cult. But like, if you reverse this and you have a bad trip, it kind of sounds like Charles Manson going out to the desert and you know, doing lots of acid, but this just led to the creation of the Grateful Dead instead. But I think that one thing that we can learn from that little tidbit of the story is the true power of friendship. <laughs> because these guys were such good friends that the one guy let the other guy put a baby in his wife. Yeah, that, uh, I don't know, man. It was a different wow. time, but yeah, you have to be really close, really close best friends for life <laughs> yeah uh don't get any ideas okay <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah his his fun would come to an end when he was charged with marijuana possession so he faked a suicide note and left for mexico but soon came back and was imprisoned for six months yep um and once he was released, he settled down at the family farm in Oregon with his wife and four children. He would continue to write books, short stories, and taught at the University of Oregon. He was diagnosed with diabetes in 1992 and had a stroke in 97 and eventually passed away in 2001 from complications that arose from a surgery to remove a tumor that was in his liver. Despite this, Keezy's legacy can be seen in the counterculture movement and its music, but more importantly, his writings uh, obviously had a huge impact on how we look at and perceive mental health. You said once or twice in and off the show that, uh, that this guy led an interesting life, and I did not expect it to get quite so interesting. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Acid, menst uh, mental institutions, the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. Plus he, plus, he got, plus, he got to say, yeah, I knew them back when they were the Warlocks. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, the Grateful Dead, huh? <laughs> uh, but yeah, me too. Like, uh, I, I had no idea he'd did that much and was that involved with the the movement and, and like I mean when you think of the Grateful Dead you just kind of think of that time era um, 
and, and yeah, he was right in there uh, <laughs> having sex with the lead singer's wife. So uh, yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. It is really crazy. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that hearing the name The Grateful Dead makes you think of a specific time period because that is what it makes me feel like even though I don't know the time period because I definitely don't know any of their songs. Unless I do. Or is it old enough to where even the old people don't listen to them anymore? Well, I mean, I'm sure some people do. Well, I, I just got into The Grateful Dead maybe a year ago because uh, um, my girlfriend at the time was really big into them uh, and so was her mom. But And I was like, ah, it's whatever. But like Friend of the Devil, that's a really good song. I think if anyone should be listening to music, let me say real quick since you said you're a Grateful Dead thing. <laughs> I think people should start listening to more bare naked ladies okay there's more music than the song one week and the big bang theory uh, theme song uh, i know that it doesn't seem like you need any more than those two songs but their song box set off of their first album gordon i've listened to it a hundred times since yesterday <laughs> and um i'll be that girl off stunt Oh, man, it's so good. Okay, but enough of that. <laughs> we should probably get to the book. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I love the Big Bang Theory. That, that theme song when it comes on every time, oh, so great. It just puts me in that mental space, bro. Yeah, where I'm a big-headed Sheldon. And uh, yeah. where I'm like a Ben Shapiro type and I'm so smart. Uh, but okay, okay, all right. Well, we'll get into the book. Uh, so the book starts off with part of a poem, and it goes, "One flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest." And really getting the title inside the book out of the way right off the bat, compared to the author in part one of a Clockwork Orange writing the book, a Clockwork Orange. You know, yeah. sometimes these writers really. Well, I suppose this isn't a book inside the book, but, you know, it's de it's something that I'm saying. I don't know what, but it is yeah. something. Uh, well, for the longest time, I, I didn't know what the poem had to do with the book. But then once I finished it, I was like, oh, OK, it makes sense now. Um, it was one of those titles that I'd thought of a lot since. Well, I mean, I don't know that I thought of a, thought of it a lot since I was younger, but I had seen the movie you know, six or seven or maybe eight years ago or something. And I always thought that the title was really strange when I actually thought, you know, out loud, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like, what does it all mean? But, um, you know, we'll get to that. We'll get to it. Um, and, and the cuckoo itself is interesting because it's almost, it's a bird and it's almost like a parasite. I don't think this has anything to do with the meaning of the movie. Or the, or the book. Oh, continue. Uh, but uh, so a cuckoo will plant its egg among the other other birds and have the mom basically adopt it, but it has no idea. Oh. Um, so the chick will hatch and it gets much bigger than most of the birds. So it pushes them out. Oh. Oh. But the mother keeps on feeding this bird because it thinks it's its uh, son or oh. daughter. 
Um, but why? That's what just is nature. the evolutionary gain? Well, think I about mean, it. Think about it. If you don't have to take care of your kid, you you can uh, free child care. Yeah, free child care, but you don't have to see your kid again. Basically, um, wow. Yeah, so cuckoos in a perfect world, huh? Yeah, cuckoos are a bit cuckoo. Uh, yeah, they're mean. Yeah, they are. It's very metal, but that is pretty metal. I, I really don't think that the the nature of the bird has anything to do with the book. But anyways, the oh, the, I'm certain. Uh, so the book introduces us to our narrator, Chief Bromden. He is in a psychiatric ward, and in another room, he thinks the orderlies who like help around with the hospital, their assistance to the nurse, basically. Um, and there are three black men. He he always makes sure to let the, the reader know yep. that they're black. Uh, I don't know, in he... some disparaging ways too. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting how often we hear or we see. The least black boy, the one black boy, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it uh, stands out when you're reading the book. It definitely does. Um, and and it, during the scene, he makes it well known that <laughs> they're up to no good. And they, all three of these guys, they look up at Chief, who's six foot seven, all at once, almost mechanically, and they start to mock him. And they hand him a broom, call him Chief Broom, that's his nickname throughout the ward, and tell him to get get to sweeping. And they, they continue to talk smack, and he tells us that he pretends to be deaf and dumb, and that he is half Native American, and despite his physical nature, he is almost completely ignored by the ward. So, I mean, just th- this first introduction to Chief is like here's this big powerful character which can be seen as native americans and we just kind of ignore them you know or america ignores them which is kind of it's messed up uh almost the literal elephant in the room the six foot seven guy that you know he's he's you know doing his own thing well it's deaf and dumb yeah as they call him and it's just like we don't address the elephant in the room that is the history of our treatment of native americans that well right. either so um do you think do you think that was intentional oh yeah yeah i mean wow well, i can't believe i didn't put two and two together because now that you say it it sounds so obvious well that's pretty cool and in the book it they talk about all these stories about white men and their relations with native americans and like Right. His dealings with it and we'll get into it but that is the biggest difference from the movie and the book is that in the book it's told from his narration but in the movie it's not yeah it's completely told from from chief's point of view through the whole book but yeah. he's just kind of a side character to crazy man jack nicholson's rp mcmurphy in the movie yeah yep during this time a Nurse enters the ward and chills the hall. And Chief refers to her as, quote, the big nurse. Like, he always refers to her as the big nurse. But really, her name is Nurse Ratched, uh, which is just like a negative name in itself, I feel. When you hear Ratched, it it's just like, oh, gross. It's uh, just, even if 
Well, I don't know. It kind of immediately makes you think a wretched or... I don't know if kids are still doing it, Ratchet. but I know that a few years back, yeah, you'd hear you'd hear someone perhaps be referred to as ratchet in a not good way. Yeah, I don't know. Then, I'm not hip anymore. I don't know the words. No, oh, I I don't think I ever was personally. <laughs> um, did we talk about how they're making a Miss Ratchet origin story Netflix show yeah. or movie or something? We did briefly. Oh my goodness. Yep. Well, and that was unintentional too. I mean, <laughs> like, if I may say, as a as someone who read the book, I think it seems wholly unnecessary. But what do I know? Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see how it goes. Or uh, I'm not gonna watch it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it, it does look like a a, a spin off of the worst American horror story seasons. Like some of those seasons are just god awful, but the first yeah, two are really good. Not to two. Okay, you know what? I'm always saying not to get off track, but this time I'm just gonna clear the air and say to get off track. I remember back in, oh man, it must have been 2000, maybe even 11. 2000, what, uh, two, I, whenever that first season of American Horror Story came out, I remember you were a big fan, you were always talking about that, like, uh, amorphous leather suit crawling around the hotel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you remember the, the previews of it, and just like the sound and music's uh, score to it was like something I've never seen before. And I was like, I've heard that, I've heard that show like every season has the same issue where it starts off cool and then it just it fizzles gets out. a little too off the rails or something. Yeah. And speaking of getting off the rails, let's get back to the story. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, when the nurse walks by, Chief like closes his eyes because of her presence. So he's just like sweeping, and he's like, "Oh God, oh God!" Like really scared of her. Um. And the orderlies are gossiping, which isn't allowed, and she makes her way towards them, and he describes her becoming, quote, big as a tractor. And he'll say this multiple times, <laughs> where he's like, yeah, McBurphy is as big as a tractor. Uh, yep. But in this case, Nurse Ratchet isn't really that big. It's just she takes up the room. She's just one of those people that is going to take order, uh when she walks in and he says he can quote smell the machinery inside her yeah the way he describes her is very interesting and almost robotic like a mechanical being just giving out orders to this place and the author that's our first taste right there of of big chief bromden describing something as uh you know mechanical or he can smell the the fumes burning mm -hmm. here and there and all that stuff and i really like how the author incorporated it into the story and we'll see at some points that you even wonder yourself if chief is seeing things yeah yeah it's, because it's... it could just be re it could just be horrible treatment or it could once again be the kind of thing talking about how we can you know, see the sparks flying off the, flying off the nurse as she walks around. It's uh, it, it's, it's written it's very cool. interestingly. Yeah, it's very yeah. cool. I love the way he describes uh, the staff and the nurse, and just yeah, um, setting it through a pair of eyes that I wouldn't call them 
the eyes of an unreliable narrator, but we'll see that the chief, just like everyone else on the ward, has see. his own personal issues. Yeah, he's seen some stuff. Uh, been through yep. some stuff, too. Um, yep. But yeah, so she tells the men to like basically straighten up, and chief says that her skin is like flesh-colored enamel, and her face calculated and precise, like like a Terminator or something. And yeah, robotic. Yeah, very very cool. And yep, he says, "quote A mistake was made in manufacturing somehow because putting those big breasts." on what would have been an otherwise perfect work. Uh, you can see how bitter she is about it. Um, so, yeah, he, he makes a big point to say that her breasts are pretty unnatural, <laughs> and even the nurse herself is uh, tries to cover them up the best that she can. And so she orders the men to, to shave Chief, and Chief decides to hide in a closet because <laughs> he doesn't want to get shaved. Um, and his heart is beating, but I'd imagine it is kind of like a horror movie having these people run your ward. And one man does find him. He starts to drag him into the shaving room and he thinks about screaming, but it'd only make things worse. Like if you cause any disturbance to the ward, it will have its consequences. Being that he puts on that he's, once again, it's not my words. Everyone calls him deaf and dumb. Yeah and mute that would be pretty wicked if the first time anyone heard him make noise was him just screaming at the top of his lungs yeah like people been in the ward for 20 years and they've never even heard him exhale Mm -hmm. that'd be pretty wicked i think yeah yep he he knows how to keep his cover um yeah so he he describes the atmosphere as if he's stuck in fog which is created by nurse ratchet and he starts to scream and is medicated or he's about to tell us a story that is just truly awful and it just so happens to be the story he's about well the whole book really um <laughs> and so he wakes up from the fog and anytime like there's like an overbearing presence so like nurse ratchet or whatever he says that there's a huge fog like he just can't see and uh yeah you can barely see the people in front of you let alone the hand in front of your face yeah exactly and it, it it's just his way of describing like <laughs> this is a pretty uh authoritarian regime going on like it's just you know, very confusing at times and scary. And so he, he notices that the aides are eating his breakfast. You know, it's, it's a small detail, but it's just like, that's pretty messed up. Like, this dude hasn't ate for a while, and then you wake up and they're eating your breakfast. I'd be pretty mad. I'd probably scream right there. Big man like that's got to eat. Yeah. Well, man of smaller portion should eat too, but... You know what I mean. This guy, this guy's definitely got to eat. Um, <laughs> uh, but he explains that their source of entertainment is puzzles and watching whoever comes in the door. Like whoever's coming through the door, it's gonna be fun because it might be some uh, visitor or someone new. Um, and it just shows it'll how it'll just literally 
it'll literally break up any monotony. Yeah, I was literally, and I assume that. Yeah, I, I I assume that even for all intents and purposes, being trapped inside this building, even you know, flushing the toilet would entertain you <laughs> enough to you know make you realize how awful it is and they're like whoa it really does like uh that water really is swirling around in there <laughs> wants to make bets on how quick the bowl can be cleaned out <laughs> another left turn <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> just like nascar boys <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like it's extremely monotonous and uh but but uh, sometimes it is a PR rep, a public relations rep, who shows off how clean and orderly the place is and how far they've come from uh, harsh treatments. Like I was talking about earlier, like uh, the harsh treatment of um, mentally ill people, how they would be shoved in basements or whatnot, and you know, just basically ignored. Not saying that once they're putting it into these institutions, it got better. Uh, there still were lots of problems, but. And th- this guy's just a PR person, so obviously he's trying to show how great it is. Once again, I think it's kind of important to note that with the book coming out in, I think it was 1963. Two. Um, even the whole idea of the like state-run institution is, you know, very fresh. We can look at it now from, you know, 50 or 60 years later or whatever, and it's just it's all it's all like uh still brand new stuff here and the mentally ill being treated like you were just talking about is not much a thing of the past at this point in the story i wouldn't say no nope i mean if my if my grandma lived through it i don't really think it's that far away you know like it's interesting that, that's always how i have perspective in- on it if it takes place within one grandma lifetime, <laughs> then it wasn't that long ago. Oh, was it past my grandma? Ah, uh, yeah, it could have been that. Oh, bad. that's only that was only half a grandma away, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, they're watching the door, and a new patient has come today, and Chief can just tell he's like, "Ooh, this is different. Like, this is he's got a different." aura about them yes yeah um and it, it it happens instantly so the man enters and he's being chased around by the nurse aides <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to get him into the shower because that's protocol you have to shower when you first get there and so he responds by saying quote I have showered once this morning, thank you. Now let me look at my new home. This is my first time at an institution of psychology. <laughs> Very well put. Yeah, so uh, he's already breaking the rules. And once again, Chief describes him as a big man, which he is, but at the same time, he's like describing his personality. Like he's got a big... Uh, right. Um, commanding personality with a brassy, loud voice. He has. He's like a a bull of a man with yeah the the personality and energy to you know compliment mirror it. his physical yeah, yeah. complement it. There we go. Yep. Um, and he has red hair, a devilish grin, and stitches on the bridge of his nose from a fight he has been in. So right off the back, you're kind of you know like, what? dang. 
you can't help but picture Jack Nicholson reading the book if you've already seen the movie, yes. I, I feel, just like any other time. But reading it out like that, um, it probably wouldn't work the same, but I picture the guy who played Rorschach oh, playing yeah. him. Yeah. With, yeah, the, the red hair and the... I mean, that guy just... Picturing Rorschach in that movie, he uh, just seems like he would naturally have stitches on the bridge of his nose, you know? <laughs> You're not... Jackie Earl Haley is his name. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing where it's like, You're, I'm not locked in here. You're locked in here with me, or whatever he says. Yeah, I'm not... <laughs> uh, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Exactly. I just read that... I just read that quote the other day, and for some reason I thought it was Batman. That's not Batman. No, 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 no. That's Watchmen. It is Watchmen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if that if that character was a bit more pudgy, uh, maybe a bit more buff, oh, he, he would be that. Yeah, I think. sure. Just bigger in general. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, right off the bat, we can tell this is a pretty rough dude, but um, as he stands in the doorway... Uh, all the patients are looking at him, and he laughs a booming laugh. And this was very interesting. The He says that's the first laugh the place has heard in years. It literally is foreign, almost. Yeah, and it's just like, laughter's the best medicine, it's, but not It's always case. quiet and unexciting on the ward. Yeah, yep, just follow the rules, really. And he introduces himself as Randall... McMurphy, quote, a gambling fool. And yeah, this is the this is the main guy that's going to stir everything up, basically. He goes up to the men that are playing cards and gives them advice. He says that he caused too much scuffles at the work farm and that the courts diagnosed him as a psychopath. Um, and this just goes to show what type of guy this is. He is a gambling addict. He, the first place he goes to is the <laughs> gambling table. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was just going to say he uh, di- or he tells everyone that he's been diagnosed as a psychopath. And I guess I don't personally know the attributes that adds up to a psychopath. But we're going to kind of think about uh, his diagnosis all throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, even back then, I feel like it's a pretty broad term to label somebody. Oh, sure. Didn't even think about that. Yeah, and I, I just don't know in general. Wow. Um, I don't know. It's just an interesting character that we'll have to dissect, really. This is the kind of stuff I come to this podcast for, <laughs> is the second, or is to go over everything with a fine-tooth comb. Yeah. Didn't even think about how... Yeah, every person was every person that ward was probably a psychopath when they were diagnosed or something like that. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, so he he doesn't agree with the diagnosis, but doesn't argue because it gets him out of work. That seems to seems to be his main motivation. He didn't want to work on the farm anymore, and then here he can yeah. just gamble. Uh, so it works out, and he immediately puts a two dollar bet on the game of. Pinochle. Yeah, so they're playing this game, and 
the, this whole time, the aides are still chasing him. Uh, <laughs> and in their hand, they have a rectal thermometer. So they're like, get over here, McMurphy. Bend over. There couldn't be a, <laughs> there couldn't be a better introduction for this no. guy. We're going to see raises hell through the entire book. Yeah, and it, it's just pure chaos. <laughs> I mean, yep. it, it's not like... Everything... <laughs> Uh, you'd, you'd be able to hear a pin drop in this ward for literally years. like 50 years yeah. up until this day. <laughs> and then you have this man. <laughs> laughter for the first time and there's this weird redheaded <laughs> guy like, ooh, gotta catch me if you really want it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like, uh, I'll make note of that too, but like each time he's like running to the table or like running around to make bets, he's like running in circles around the table and around the room. Uh, while they're chasing him so it's not uh, it's pretty funny um yeah so the chief explains that the place is divided into two categories of people they are divided into acutes and chronics acutes are patients that are considered curable and they often tell jokes but laugh into their fists so like a very quiet laugh because they can be written up for laughing, which is just crazy. May I, uh, may I do my personal approximation of what the, the laugh into the fist sounds like? Yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Here we go. How was it? How did I do? It? <laughs> it was so great. I didn't even hear it. Uh, you didn't get written up today. That was good. See, I th- see. That's kind of that was kind of the idea. I think is. It's supposed to be so quiet. Yeah, like your head that, is just uh, shaking. Like you're just like. I think yeah. Yeah, I thought it was masterful personally. That, yeah, that's good. A good, good. Because uh, we're a podcast, right? So we gotta relate that physical image of this. Uh, yes, thank you. So, <laughs> but yeah, so the patients also spy on other patients and. They write down the actions of others so they can sleep da- sleep in longer. Like it's a it's a snitch system. That's what it really is. Right. Just so you can get it. And it's not even that much. I think it's like maybe five minutes extra or ten. And need I call back to a Clockwork Orange in part two when Alex was inside the Stadja, and he himself got a little chummy with uh, I can't remember who it was specifically. I think it was the prison chaplain because he. Mm-hmm would also kind of go and tattle about what the other prisoners were doing. Yeah, exactly. Which it's, I mean, this uh, facility is pretty much like a prison. There's not really that many differences. Right. But yeah, I feel like it's pretty common. Never been there, never been to prison, but I I think it's common. And it it usually doesn't end good for the snitch. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Looking at you, (laughs) 6'9". Oh, sure. Uh, So Chief, he he thinks it's so the big nurse has an excuse to make the acutes into chronics through treatments like lobotomies and electroshock therapy, etc. Like just having this strict order. Because it's almost like she likes to have patients have their brains fried almost like it's very messed up easy to control them that way i suppose yeah i mean when you're acute you still have a personality and yep. but when you're a chronic uh you're just you're just kind of like chief where you just kind of walk around and don't say much yeah chief is considered a chronic in the book but 
we'll see that the other men described as chronics are usually wheelchair bound yes. and yeah. they don't talk or even you know eat themselves or anything like that but chief is up walking around he's always got his broom with him yeah um he's a different type of chronic i guess he is he is um so he he describes chief describes one patient that wasn't acute but went through a botched electro electrotherapy session uh so now he's strapped to the wall and the floor is deteriorating because he he pisses on it every day and this piss this puddle chief has to mop every day so it's just very a, a very horrific uh image of this guy being strapped to the wall because they messed up one of his electro shock treatments this was one of those things that i was trying to figure out if it actually happened you know inside the ward I don't think it did, though. It just sounds so ridiculous, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure. There's a few things. A lobotomy sound kind of ridiculous, too, yeah. but uh, they got their, you know, they got their money's worth doing those back in the day. Yeah, and that's the other thing. We've mentioned it a bit, but there's some parts where he kind of goes in between reality and <laughs> a place that isn't reality, but it has some truths to it. The place that isn't reality is just as real to Chief, we must we must remember. Yeah. Even though this is a house of horrors to just about everyone inside because of the monotony, he's going through a whole other thing. Yep. Yep, exactly. He's battling his own stuff. Um, yep. And so he also describes that chronics are, quote, machines with flaws inside that can't be repaired, uh, which is just really sad. Um, and Chief describes himself as a chronic, and he's been there the longest besides the big nurse, Nurse Ratched. And once again, with him talking about chronics being machines with irreparable parts, where, you know, seeing how he, I'm not sure if he sees everyone like it or just the big nurse and the orderlies and stuff like that, but making machinery out of men. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, this is just maybe a, that one was just a metaphor. Yeah, he he, uh, it's like a factory where you're supposed to come here and you're like a machine and you get sent out if you're repaired. But if you're a chronic, like you're staying there for life. And making a machine out of a man almost sounds a bit like, a bit like something of a Clockwork Orange. Wouldn't you say? I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. Like making a perfect being for society because some of these people are just fine. They just have some minor flaws. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Good point. Maybe. I think so. I, th I, th I definitely think so. Uh, <laughs> five points. Thank uh, you. Uh, five extra points oh. for lunch today. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> He, he says that acutes and chronics stay separate because the chronics are reminders of what they could turn into under Nurse Ratched's regimen. So they, they kind of try to shield them out of their vision because they're like, I don't want to become that. I don't want to say mindless, but I mean, Ra Nurse Ratched has the power to turn you into a chronic, which is very terrifying. Um, yeah. So yeah, McMurphy, he goes up to the acutes and he says... Quote, 
damn, what a sorry looking outfit. You guys don't look so crazy to me, end quote. And that just kind of sets the whole tone for the story is that, yeah, a lot of these guys really aren't that crazy. That Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Does set a good tone. Yeah, and he asks one of the men who goes by the name of Billy, and he asks him, quote, who is the bull goose loony? Uh, and he, <laughs> and that's how what he refers to as like the leader of the whole the whole thing. Bully or Billy, he stutters and he says uh, he's next in line. Like he's like, well, I'm I'm VP. <laughs> but yeah, Billy, uh, nothing wrong with him. He just has a, a really bad stutter, and that's it. And so McMurphy laughs at this and he he says that he's taking over and once again he asks the same question and then billy says that it's harding the leader of the patient's council harding he is a nervous frail college educated man who has a very beautiful wife and he has a picture of her on his nightstand and he is in the background (laughs) quote waiting to have sand kicked on him (laughs) what what does that mean uh it's just like is that a metaphor it's it's like saying his wife is very beautiful and takes up the picture and he's just like a background in the relationship and he looks like a nerd that's about to be bullied basically um you failed to mention harding's beautiful white hands that soar through the air like doves when he speaks passionately about something (laughs) it's like uh that tim and eric she's always talking about his hands (laughs) which uh the one where they have like very uh, like tiny hands very nice hands you can i think i remember that one well and it also reminds me of the petite feet song Okay, yeah, that's what I was just going to bring up once you once you mentioned tiny extremities on Tim and Eric, petite feet, feminine step. step. Sounds like a lady when he's walking in the room. <laughs> oh, a true classic! Uh, it really is. It's where I get ninety percent of my humor. I feel. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he he is like a very petite man, and it's almost like um, being with his wife is almost. I don't want to like, he's like a cuck, you know, you know, I I don't know how else to put it. Well, no, it sounds more like he has a lot more respect for his wife than he has for himself. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense too. And he, he just feels very masculine next to her. Harding, he puts his cards down and asks Billy if McMurphy has an appointment. So this is like Harding you know, still trying to grasp onto the power he still has as kind of leader of the acutes. And Billy asks if he does, and McMurphy says uh, he can't believe he's the leader, and he tells Billy to step to step aside. So they're both, like, speaking through Billy, who has, like, this really bad stutter. Um, I love that. Yeah. And he's like, well, tell him I'm the leader now. And Harding is like, do you have an appointment? <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny. Yeah, do you have an appointment? Do you have an appointment to see the bull goose loony? <laughs> yeah. It's a very funny way to approach someone like McMurphy because uh, Harding, he's a very smart dude. Um, yep. And you can see that with some of his uh, <laughs> his insults or like uh, comebacks. So, Or just his vocabulary in general. Yeah, yeah very smart dude. 
Yep. So Harding says that he has been the leader for two years and he's the craziest man alive. And uh, so he's like, I'm the bull goose loony. Like, I'm crazy. Uh, and then McMurphy says that he's so crazy that he voted for Eisenhower. <laughs> and then Harding, he says that he did it twice, which I don't That's I don't fun. know if it's like a crazy thing or if it's the equivalent of like voting for Trump these days. But I, I seriously don't I, know. I could see it being something like that. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, scene going down here. And so during this whole time, the the patients are very intrigued by McMurphy because he's just somebody that takes up the whole room when he walks in and they ask about his background. He said he served in the army for some time in Korea and did some logging. But now he is dedicated to staying single and gambling. He goes on to meet all the acutes, even the guy that is strapped to the wall. So, yeah, it, it was real. Um, and he he says, quote, buddy, I don't like to see a man sluicing in his own water. Um, and he even meets the chronics. McMurphy, McMurphy uh, talking about how he's dedicated his life to staying single and gambling is just showing us that he is one of uh, literature's best examples of a drifter. Just going where the wind takes you. Yeah, yep, exactly. Um, But the more appropriate quote is he says, I, they said, when he says they diagnosed him as a psychopath, they said that he gambles too much, he fights too much, and he fucks too much. Uh, Whoa! (laughs) um, Holy moly, McMurphy. Yep, so... He's he's like is that is that an issue <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> but yeah that that's what he always says and um, but yeah it's almost like he's a he's a politician making his rounds uh, and even getting to know the people that are forgotten the chronics and he goes up to chief and he introduces himself and learns that he is deaf and dumb like he he doesn't know that and chief explains how dirty and scarred and strong McMurphy's hands are when he shakes him shakes his own a lot of fights yeah yeah just like man's hands you know we'll see that I don't know that it was meant to be derogatory but in this part of the book too Billy is the one telling McMurphy that uh chief is deaf and dumb and he's like yeah, he's just a big, deaf, dumb Indian. <laughs> like, uh, hello there, Billy. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the appropriate way to phrase that sentence there, bud. It's deaf and dumb. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yep. It's much more appropriate, even though it isn't. Yep. <laughs> um, so, uh, in the distance, the nurse starts to call for, quote, McMurray. <laughs> So right off the bat, you can kind of tell that uh, this isn't probably going to go well. And she says, (laughs) (laughs) she says that uh, everyone must follow the rules. Um, And McMurphy, he he smiles back at her and they're almost like sizing each other up. Like it's uh, like it's uh, a Mexican standoff. Right. 
and <laughs> they're just both smiling at each other, seeing who can break first. This is the real, the real uh, bull goose loony running the place is Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. He should have been running it by her and not Harding. Yep. Telling her that he's going to take the place over, but you know, you'll pretty much tell her that soon enough. Yep, exactly. So the big nurse, she returns to her office and Chief hears her talking to another nurse about McMurphy. She's basically saying that he's shown up to cause chaos and manipulate people to his own will, which is like, eh, I get you're not off, you know, like we, we, we like, really don't know his intentions at this point. It's like, oh, uh, he's been here for two minutes. <laughs> How good are you at reading people? Yeah. <laughs> She read his palms, his scary palms, and she's like, oh, yep, yep. I've seen this and before. I realize I realize that he's being chased around the ward by three <laughs> men right now, but, uh, you know, maybe he's not all that bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Give him a chance. Yeah, come on, nurse. Um, but she's, she's already not having it. Um, she sees nope. this as a challenge, and he does too. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the perfect yin yang yeah yeah they should get married i would say i would say yeah i'm sure that they would be a match made <laughs> in heaven i would say that they are good versus evil but we'll see that mcmurphy uh is pretty morally dubious, <laughs> he's pretty flawed so that's how we'll that's how i'll describe it instead is <laughs> morally dubious versus evil that's pretty good <laughs> mcmurphy's doing his thing right and it reminds chief of uh uh, of a patient that they used to have and uh, that went by the name of Mr. Tabor or Tabor, I'm not sure, but um, he, he did the same thing that McMurphy did, just kind of testing the system and he ended up getting electro electroshock therapy until he was, quote, cured. Ugh. So kind of right off the bat, you're like, uh, McMurphy, I appreciate your movement, but this is probably not going to end well. Um, yeah, I appreciate the breath of fresh air you're bringing in here, but uh, <laughs> might not be for the best. We're fine. We're fine with coughing or laughing into our hands. Uh, it, it's fine. Everything's yep. fine. Chief, he describes the big nurse as a robot that serves the, quote, com combine. And... It, this is like the force behind the curtains that keeps order to society through people like the big nurse. So like big brother. Yeah. It's like uh, this big machine that you can't really see, but it's there and it's commanding these people of society like big nurse or like a, like a government official or anybody with power, with power. Exactly. Like this isn't just like in a mental institution. Like he's, it's a good metaphor for the society in itself. Like the, com the the combine is everywhere in the world and controls the most powerful people. And she's been grooming her staff for years, and she has full control of the doctors, aides, and other nurses. And the doctors that first meet her have said, "Quote: I feel like my veins are running with ammonia. My kids won't sit on my lap." My wife won't sleep with me, and I insist on a transfer, end quote. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's like, she's ruining my life. Like, each time I go home, yeah. I'm as cold as a ice tray, and <laughs> nobody likes me anymore. Yeah, that's, 
that's really taking your work home with you. Yeah, but thinking about the big nurse in your own free time. Yeah. Oh man. But I just thought that was such an interesting quote because like that's a really good indication of who big nurse can be and the effect she has on people. Like it's just very cold. Mm-hmm. Um yep. And her aides are chosen for their inherent cruelty and have been adjusted for years to match the frequency of Nurse Ratchet. So hmm. it's almost like Nurse Ratchet is giving getting signals from the combine and then she's sending them through like wires almost to these people or like radio waves to be on her frequency. Like she can snap her fingers or just look at people like her aides and they know exactly what to do. But it is a lengthy process. And once again, Chief is referring to the nurse as, like, fine-tuning her her three orderlies like they are, once again, tiny little machines. Yep. Over the years, she's been perfecting them to be almost like, um, maybe not mini, mini ratchets, but exactly what she needs to make sure no one's having any fun on the ward. Yeah. Uh, minions basically Minions. <laughs> yeah. appropriate yeah she's like a, a, an unlikable guru um chief he starts to describe the strict schedule they are on which is extremely harsh and it's enforced by the aides um and it just reminded me so much of like basic training this whole time here like they're on a very strict schedule um everything's controlled by one or two people and even some of the names of the places in there, like the day room, that's where we would go to uh, have our meetings and stuff, um, which was, uh, it, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, but for these people, it was the worst. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Chief, Chief is um, recalling a certain day about, uh, and, and it involves Mr. Tabor, and Mr. Tabor was the guy we talked about earlier that's like McMurphy, but who had electroshock therapy until he was uh, pretty much done for. And Yeah, ache, er, I thought you were going to say until he was quote-unquote cured again, but I'm pretty sure that their, uh, their definition of curing someone is turning your brain into an omelet. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, after breakfast, they get in line to take meds and Mr. Tabor, you know, when someone prescribes you medication, it's like it's just a common courtesy to let them know what they're being fed. And he's asking that same question. And Nurse Ratched sees this as a threat and he and she has her aides hold him down and inject him with a uh, with a sedative just before some people come in to see the acutes and this just disrupts the machinery. Um, So he's kind of recalling back to this time and like just this little incident of him asking this causes the machine to disrupt. And this is nurse Ratched's machine. Like she's not used to this thing uh, going off the rails basically. And so once gone, the aides give Mr. Tabor uh, electroshock therapy we're gonna go down another memory that chief had and he's recalling when he was playing football in high school and his coach would take the team to visit different parts of town 
which is kind of interesting. And they go to a cotton mill and he compares it to the ward, just like the big machines going around and all the pulley systems and everything. And he says, quote, the ward is for fixing up mistakes made in the neighborhoods, schools and churches, end quote. This is Chief saying we're not the problem. The problem is the neighborhoods, the people that uh, perceive us, the school system, how they perceive us, and even sometimes the church uh, look at us. Like it, it's it's how the problem is how society perceives us. The completed product, once it's done with the ward, goes back into society better than before. And he talks about the photo ops Tabor has been in like uh, in, in the newspapers and everything and. It's showing Tabor with Boy Scouts and all these other good deeds. Oh, so yeah, one one of the quotes from the neighbor that uh, lives by Mr. Tabor says, quote, Why, I've never seen anything beat the change in Maxwell Tabor since he's got back from the hospital. A little black and blue under the eyes. Lost a little weight. But you know what? He's a new man. Gah! modern American science, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy. So for any of our listeners that don't know what little black and blue under the eyes means, means this guy got a lobotomy. Just a, just a little bruising under the eyes. Yes. Where the ice pick probably bumped up against your eyes. <laughs> just a little bump. It wasn't that big. Uh, yeah, what, whatever. It's not that big a deal. He's a new man. Yeah, he's, a, he's not ornery anymore. He, he's a perfect... Uh, he can go in his cookie-cutter house and live his cookie-cutter life. Yeah. Now. Once you just drain that personal, uh, personality out of them, it's just... They work like the perfect little machines they're meant to. Uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, American science. Yeah, you feed them... You feed them their three bowls of mush every day and <laughs> replace the catheter bag. Ah, just how man was meant to live. Yeah, you work your five days a week, all right? You get your one week of vacation. Why aren't you happy? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that this guy is actually working or going on vacation, but... Yeah, it's almost like... Uh, it's almost like it was set up like to have these photo ops with the Boy Scouts where he's leading these Boy Scouts and everything. Because that's exactly how society wants to portray these wards is that, oh, they'll fix you up. You'll, you'll become a new man instead of like accepting you for who you are. Um, so, yeah, once again, but it's Chief showing that it's society is what's wrong. We can also, well, not jump into the future of the book, but we'll see that a few of these guys personally do believe that they do belong away from the outside world well yeah but you know that's that's not the case with every one of them yeah and it's just been beating beaten into them for so long that they accept it and it's it's really sad but yeah so like this uh newspaper article was considered a successful dismissal like a successful discharge from the hospital and it brought genuine joy to nurse ratchet's heart which is just disgusting like you give this person a lobotomy and now they're just like a shell of their former self and but (laughs) they're they're making uh bonfires with the boy scouts now so it's okay (laughs) like the boy scouts the boy scouts probably have to show him how to make the fire but yeah 
In the present day, uh, the acutes gather for the daily meeting with the big nurse and the doctor Spivey. So this is the doctor that's like in charge of the nurse, but not really (laughs) Um, because she has a control on everything. So, yeah, they do this every day and Nurse Ratchet asks if they should begin the meeting and nobody looks at her except for McMurphy. Like they're all all dodging her eyesight because it is scary. But yep. McMurphy is willing to take her on, and she starts a, a conversation about Harding. And the acutes leave comment notes in the logbook about his difficult relationship with his wife and how much he comments about her breasts. So it's almost like these guys. Once the, it's not even like a therapy session. It's almost like a roast session, and we'll see that. And so the nurse reads aloud that Harding feels inferior because of his wife's boobs, which we've mentioned earlier. And so she just casually follows up on this and she's like, now, does anybody want to touch up on this? And then uh, McMurphy says, touch up on what? And then (laughs) uh, the nurse hides her anger and pulls out McMurphy's file and obviously McMurphy was making a joke about touching boobs. Uh, yeah, come on. It's just a little good-natured humor. Yeah, yeah, that good old McMurphy humor <laughs> that, that hasn't aged well. <laughs> uh, Randall Patrick. R.P. Um, we'll kind of actually see that Murphy's entire character kind of didn't age well. <laughs> no. That's not to say that I, I don't like McMurphy, but... Yeah, well, he's just like every other protagonist we have. Uh, very flawed. <laughs> yeah, when are when are we just going to cover like a book about an average human being that doesn't enjoy the act of murder or isn't you know, in mental anguish all day. Um, or is just rowdy overall. McMurphy's technically the best uh, guy we've covered so, so far. So far, he's not even that good. <laughs> no. Uh, stay tuned for A Christmas Carol. That will be next month, everybody. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, Christmas Carol, just in time for October. Yeah. <laughs> just in time for Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're going to start Christmas a little early here, folks. Uh, <laughs> yeah? Um. But yeah, so she she full, pulls out this file and it has everything we need to know about McMurphy. And so we learned that he earned a Distinguished Service Cross in Korea for leading an escape out of a prisoner camp, but was discharged for insubordination. Just meaning he didn't get along with his upper, his chain of command, really. Um, and he got involved in multiple brawls, gambling, and one case of rape. And he had been accused of raping a 15-year-old girl. <sighs> but McMurphy tries to explain that she was a sex demon to the point where he, quote, had to sew his pants shut, end quote. This is one of those things where you might, leading up to this point, you see it as the, oh, here's this awesome guy coming in here to shake things up and he's going to, topple the nurse and the ward's gonna have parties every week but we'll see that once again all of our protagonists have flaws and this little specific bit is the only time it's mentioned through the whole book 
but it kind of just sits there nagging at the back of your brain. We'll get to know Mur- mm-hmm. uh, Mick Murphy more. We'll get to know his motives and how he's kind of led his life and hearing about all the fights and drinking and gambling he's done in his life, you kind of wonder if he is also not a complete sexual deviant. But that's really more up for debate after, you know, reading the book and feeling him out yeah. a little more, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, even even to this point, like, I'm conflicted on how I should feel about him, you know? Um, right. After yep. finishing the book, like... Uh, but yeah, just like these little tidbits are so like disgusting. That's just like, you know, he seemed pretty cool at first, but then it's like, ah, dang yep. it. Dr. Spivey, uh, he's all under Ratched's control and he's trying his best not to laugh at McMurphy. Um, and the doctor is now reading his file and McMurphy asks about himself being diagnosed as a psychopath saying, uh, this is how he interprets his own diagnosis. And he says, quote, I fight and I, f- uh, pardon, I am overzealous in my sexual relations. And then he asks like a child, he's like, doc, is that real serious? And, uh, so it's just like, he's trying to win over this doctor, it seems. And, uh, the, the doctor also mentions that McMurphy could be faking this so he could get out of work which isn't that uh, far out. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to know McMurphy more and we'll kind of see that that doesn't seem completely out of his wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so Nurse Ratched tells McMurphy to sit down due to the rules. And one of the patients starts to say, quote, fuck the wife. Uh, end quote and he'll just keep on saying this and he's one of the chronics chronics. yep oh yeah Uh, and so mcmurphy asks whispering out loud he's like once again just trying to bring something to the the group uh and he said he whispers whose wife and then uh martini says quote Whose wife? Yeah, yeah, I, I see her. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and so Martini, if you guys have seen the movie, he's the character that play, that's played by Danny DeVito. Um, and he hallucinates a lot of things. So like this, his wife isn't there, but Martini is like seeing her. <laughs> um, yeah, she's there. Yeah, she's there. She's she's right in front of me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and then McMurphy says, quote, I wish I had his eyes. <laughs> and then he just ponders on how strange the meeting is. <laughs> He's like, this is a very weird uh, group of guys, but I kind of like them. Uh, <laughs> so, and then Chief, he recalls the last meeting that didn't go uh, as usual. And so he's having another flashback and he does this quite often and it involved a chronic named Pete. And when his mother was in labor with him, the doctor used pinchers on his head to pull him out and the baby could, this is Pete himself. He could see that his life was doomed and right from the start, like he hasn't even left his mother yet. And he fought as hard as he could to not come out which causes his head to be heavily deformed and 
Yeah, this part of the book, it's Chief describing him um, fighting his way out, but he uh, he says that once the head crowned or whatever, and he saw how vile and awful this world was, he did everything he could to uh, stay. stay inside. Yep. But that just made the doctor pinch his head with like some tongs even harder oh, yeah god yeah, it's a <gasps> it's a very depressing <gasps> image uh what it's gonna get even more depressing yeah um so yeah so throughout his life he just always says like i'm tired at the meetings but this one specifically not with mcmurphy but in the past um he gets up and he screams it. He says, I'm tired. And uh, the staff tries to calm him down, but he ends up hitting the aide and he knocks him to the floor. And he and Chief, uh, sorry, but Chief talks about how this is all the guys ever said and no one pays him any mind yep. because I suppose when you hear this 200 times a day, you kind of just drown it out as... As we'll get further into the book, we see that they've learned to do that with a lot of other monotonous little things within the ward. But yeah, it's just it's just really sad. Um, but yeah, so he's 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 standing there ready to fight for just a second, and then he just breaks down. Like he physically, you can just tell he he gives up, and he says, "Quote: I was born dead. I was born a miscarriage." I had so many insults. I died. I am tired. End quote. And then the nurse decides to stab him with a sedative. Yeah. Inside the book, uh, the complete scene, he yells that out a few times. I was born dead. I was born dead. I'm tired. And it's very haunting it is i that part of the book very specifically it, it's one of the most vivid uh scenes i remember uh just because yes how and sad it is. and this is the first time anyone's heard this guy form a complete thought yeah and chief says that during this part the fog behind the guy's eyes um faded away like he could actually look him eye to eye and then he used his like i don't know one go at letting out a complete lucid thought he uses it on screaming this out into the room and then he slumps back and he just goes right back to where he was and chief says that he knows that that was the one time that guy's ever gonna do anything like that and the rest of his days are gonna be spent just like uh I guess the guy's technically in the second half of his life, everything leading up to that one strange little moment, and then just slumping back into the fog and never coming back again. Yep, exactly. Like, And anytime there is disorder, uh, it's becoming like a recurring theme now. It clears the fog for a little bit, but once you know it's solved again, the fog comes back in. We, we go back to the present time and all the patients are just, they, they've been tearing into Harding for a while and his relationship. Um, and they're like, uh, it's because you're not masculine enough. And then um, they, he also, they also say that uh, you don't think your wife's cheating on you and like all these other things. And they just keep on getting worse uh, yeah, come on, after guys. the other 
Um, and and it, this is how it always happens. A nurse ratchet loves it, and it's very sick. And emasculating. Yeah, yeah, they're just tearing this guy. And Harding tries to play it off, but he is very obviously heard about this. Like, any mention of his wife is enough to make him feel emasculine, but, like, all these other things are just absorbing, and it's hurting him. And uh, so McMurphy explains he was at the center of the, the, quote, pecking party, and that Nurse Ratchet got the first taste of the blood. So he's, like, pulling him to the side, and uh, he's like, listen here, buddy, you, you, you suffered from the pecking party, and it's Nurse Ratchet who started it. Um, and Harding, he, he thinks that the therapy works that he's getting from Nurse Ratchet. And McMurphy says that uh, she isn't pecking at his eyes, she's pecking at something else. And then Harding asks, hmm. what? Yep, exactly. So we're just like, maybe his brain, something? I don't know. Uh, yeah, his heart. <laughs> his heart, I don't know. <laughs> but then McMurphy says that it's his balls. Uh, Nurse Ratchet is picking uh-huh. at his balls. Yep. Uh, okay, that makes sense. And then, now that now that you said it out loud like that, now I get it. Y- I get what McMurphy was getting at. Yep, exactly. Um and McMurphy claims that she has aimed at the balls of all of the patients and calls her a bitch. Um, Whoa. Yep. Um, and then Harding asks, uh, quote, I thought she was a ball cutter. And then he responds, she's a bitch and a buzzard and a ball cutter. <laughs> Which, I mean, we'll see. This isn't the first incident where somebody gets their masculinity criticized. So yeah, like uh, Harding is trying to defend her saying that she does a lot of charity work and all this other bull bull crap that she feeds them. And chief describes him saying that he describes Harding as almost like this was like a, a record that was just on repeat. Like, you know, anytime that she, they're trying to criticize her, it's just like this recording that's so scripted and unnatural. And and so once he's done with his praise, he realizes that he's been duped. And yeah, Harding does call her a bitch. And McMurphy offers him a cigarette. And Harding says, yeah, yeah, you're right, McMurphy. Uh, McMurphy's stepping into this and he really is not fooling around. He's been inside the ward for like an hour and he's already about uh about ready to start like an uprising with all the all the patients there yeah yep exactly um he's not hiding his intentions no he's already calling the leader of the of the group uh a ball cutter a buzzard and the b word (laughs) the big b yeah the the triple b the triple b threat um but yeah exactly like from the start you know that he's going to cause some chaos and um, and we're not tr- quite sure what his intentions are yet, but right now we're, we're, we're kind of guessing. And uh, so Harding, he explains that Dr. Spivey is just like the rest of the patients. Uh, this was the doctor that was sitting in with him and uh, laughing at McMurphy's jokes. And he says that he's powerless under a nurse ratchet. The doctor doesn't fire nurse ratchet because... That is the authority of her supervisor. 
a lifelong friend that she has known since they were in the army uh, as nurses in the 30s. So uh, Nurse Ratched's friend is like in charge of this whole operation and they know each other very well. And it happens to be Billy's uh, mom who has the severe stutter. And we'll learn how messed up that relationship is later. Um, But yeah, he says, quote, we are victims of a matriarchy here, my friend, end quote. And oh, yeah, something about him just tossing my friend in there makes me think of how eloquently written all of Harden's sentences are. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that little snippet isn't quite, well, I suppose matriarchy, that's like a, that's like a five-point word if you're playing Scrabble, right? <laughs> you could probably get at least 30 points off that if you land on the double uh, point uh, block. Perfect. I'd imagine. But yeah, so he describes the nurse as a wolf and the patients as rabbits. Quote, Oh, don't misunderstand me. We would be rabbits wherever we go. We are all in here because we can't adjust to our rabbithood. We need a good, strong wolf like the nurse to teach us our place, end quote. Yeah, she really has burned this idea into all their brains that she is the guiding light. And even though you're completely miserable, she's, she knows what's best. Nurse Ratchet knows what's best. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Apparently. You need me. Uh, yeah. Yep. But uh, exactly. Like it's not even nurse ratchet though like it's society like society would view them as rabbits as well and they just have to stay in place that's what they think because that's what society has told them for so long and mcmurphy says that they are not rabbits and they could fit into society so mcmurphy asks why they don't rebel during the meetings and harding explains that electroshock therapy is our tool and that chief has received it over 200 times. Whew. Yep. And he says that he has turned into a six foot eight sweeping machine. So, yeah, that's you can already tell that chief has been through a lot. And at, at the hand of Nurse Ratched. So McMurphy keeps pondering what he can do. And they explain that the nurse is powerless if you pester her. But she doesn't have the ammo for you to be sent to electric shock therapy. So McMurphy, the gambler that he is, says, quote, <laughs> five bucks to each of you if I can't put a Betsy bug up that nurse's butt in a week, end quote. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to get a bug up her butt, and, which is such a weird way to say I'm going to uh, make her blow Let up. Her go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so McMurphy asks if he can be trusted, and Harding replies, quote, I believe we can be safe in doing that. You're not going anywhere for a while, end quote. And that's where we'll end uh, the first half of part one. So Yeah, the first half of part one, because the book isn't super long, but the I think it's broken down into four parts. And the first part, as we said, is like 80% of the book. Yeah, a little over half, I believe. Um, but yeah, it... There's obviously a lot to unpack here. So to do part one right. in uh, one episode would be like four hours long. Um, yeah, that'd be crazy. Yeah. Um, with that, though, I, I'll i tell people to follow us over on the Instagram 
at the Bad Apple Book Club. Cole and I are personally right in the middle of cooking up something uh, very exciting that isn't the podcast. Yep. The podcast is still being cooked up. The podcast is still exciting. Everyone calm down. <laughs> I didn't mean anything by that. Um, but something even different, but podcast related. Yeah. I don't know. Just have to uh, keep following us on Instagram <laughs> or give yep. us a follow on Instagram if you haven't already. But uh yeah. Review on iTunes, please. Yeah, uh, this was part one. Um, I, it, it, it was a very interesting book, and I, I just think that with the whole describing the ward as like a machine and everything, I can kind of see where that LSD starts to bleed in. Like, that, I, I just, and an interesting thing about um, my version of the book, I don't know if you had this, but he drew a lot of faces of the patients and the ward oh. uh, during uh, this time, and he was still doing LSD. So they're like, they, there's oh. these drawings he did that they that are in the book. Um, huh. But yeah, this, this is some very visual stuff, and pretty pretty excited for part two, part one. Absolutely, yeah, part one, part two. Um, with that though. About 10 minutes ago, I got an unexpected podcast sit-in. So, uh, did you have anything else to say to tie the show up here, Cole? Uh, honestly, um, just think we have some very interesting characters here. And we'll see if McMurphy's Rebellion works here. And <laughs> it's already been a humorous ride. And... It's gonna be. It's gonna get even more wild. So tune in for uh, next week's episode. Absolutely. Um, and with that, everyone, have a nice day. Have have a beautiful time. And uh, real quick, we'll just get one little one little tidbit. You got any wisdom for the last ten seconds of the podcast, buddy? Don't eat boogers. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice day. Trouble with that podcast, you call me. Of course. You know. Oh yeah. I can always do nothing with it. <laughs>